Okay. Well, let's go ahead and start. It's uh, 5.40. Thanks for joining me at this late hour. The topic is neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. And by way of introduction, my name is Paul Christo. I'm an associate professor in the Division of Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology at uh, Johns Hopkins. Um, for several years, I directed our pain treatment center, and I also directed our pain fellowship program. By way of disclosures, I've listed them on the slide. I host a national radio show on overcoming pain called Aches and Gains that airs on SiriusXM, hence the Media Work uh, Algiatry LLC disclosure there as well. Certainly, this um, presentation will contain references to off-label or investigational use of drugs or products for treating NTOS. The first objective is for you to be able to identify the three forms of thoracic outlet syndrome and which one is the most common. Second is to recognize some of the histologic findings that demonstrate that the anterior scalene muscle or the middle scalene muscle might be causative factors in the genesis of NTOS. And then thirdly, to describe the value of botulinum toxin into the anterior scalene muscle and other muscles uh, for the relief of symptoms of NTOS. There's no question that you know, chronic pain is an epidemic in the United States, in fact, throughout the world. A lot of it remains untreated, undertreated, and has become a significant public health problem. Uh, it diminishes quality of life, financial well-being, it increases disability, um, limits function, and leads to psychosocial comorbidities. Along the lines of about, gosh, what is it, 116 million Americans per the Institute of Medicine report in 2011 suffer from chronic pain, and the costs are astronomical, up to $625 billion annually. We've learned through the science that pain is not just a symptom of other diseases, but because of the neurochemical and neuroanatomic changes that occur in the spinal cord and the brain, that chronic pain is a disease in and of itself. I want to talk about briefly to central sensitization because I think that, you know, in the patients that I've seen with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, they certainly do uh, have representations of central sensitization. This is that process whereby the pain is amplified due to changes that occur in the spinal cord from chronic pain conditions or from neural injury. And this is a, a representation of the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. This is of animals, actually, but I think it's a great sort of representation of what happens in central sensitization. If you look at the top, you see the C afferent terminal. That's going to be the primary. That's going to, in this case, it's the C, um, C fiber. And then below that, or inferior to that, you're seeing the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And what we've seen is that chronic pain develops with the release of glutamate or substance P uh, from release of that C afferent terminal. It binds to receptors in the spinal cord, the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, increases levels of calcium, calcium activates protein kinases, and those protein kinases then activate gene transcription, which can perpetuate chronic pain and develop chronic pain. I bring this up now because later on I'm going to refer to it. <clears throat> well, here is an example of a true case of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. This isn't seen very often. I mean, it's rare, frankly. But what you see here is in this patient's left hand, you see atrophy of the hypothenar and thenar eminences. And on examination, you'd see weakness in that hand as well. So you'd see objective findings on examination. And on diagnostic testing, you'd also see uh, a decrease in amplitude or no amplitude at all in terms of nerve um, conduction testing. 
Now, this is rare. This represents about 1% of the cases. So during this presentation, I'm really going to, when I talk about NTOS, I'm talking about the, I guess, the disputed form, if you will, of NTOS, which represents, you know, 98% of the cases. I'm not really talking about true neurogenic because, frankly, you know, this is rare, and when it occurs, it's pretty identifiable. What is the thoracic outlet? The thoracic outlet is represented here. Uh, you know, you look, there's an anterior scalene muscle. Between the anterior and middle scalene muscle lies the brachial plexus. And uh, what this also represents here is that you've got the... Let me just show you. Anterior scalene muscle, middle scalene muscle, and the brachial plexus lies in between the two. Subclavian artery is here. The subclavian vein is here. And... All of these structures lie on top of the first rib and dive beneath the clavicle, just by way of reference. Here's another sort of, if we drill down, uh, even a better picture, I think, of the thoracic outlet in the scalene triangle. Same thing, you're seeing the anterior scalene muscle, then you're seeing, sorry about that, then you're seeing the brachial plexus, and then the middle scalene muscle. There's a long thoracic nerve here, subclavian artery uh, deep to the anterior scalene muscle, and then anterior to the anterior scalene muscle is the subclavian vein. Here's the first rib. All these structures lie on top of the first rib and then uh, below the clavicle. Well, by means of, or if you will, of overview, the thoracic outlet syndrome, we think, <laughs> is a compressive disorder. Now, that's true more for, I, I think, the vascular forms of TOS, it certainly may be true of the neurogenic forms, but basically we really don't know yet, unfortunately. Um, but the compression of the brachial plexus or the blood vessels is what leads to the symptoms, we think. Most of the cases are neurogenic, and we think this is an inadequate passageway you know, between the base of the neck and the armpit. Repetitive activities, like assembly line workers, workers, uh, people who do a lot of keyboard typing, might be at risk for the neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Certainly, I see a lot of patients who've had whiplash injuries or hyperextension flexion injuries in car accidents who develop these symptoms. Swimmers, uh, certain athletes, for example, swimmers, baseball pitchers, weightlifters, I've seen develop NTOS. Even, you know, there are some case reports, not only of baseball pitchers, but also of violinists and those who play the viola who develop NTOS. What they say is, what they present with is numbness, tingling in the fingers, pain in the neck, shoulder, arm, muscle spasms, pain in the scapula, uh, some report headaches, occipital headaches, and upper extremity weakness. But when we test them on examination, they really are quite strong. They don't develop objective, or at least they don't demonstrate objective findings of weakness. But subjectively, similar to other pain conditions, they report weakness of the arm. Here's another um, view of possible compression sites for NTOS or for thoracic outlet syndrome in general. But here what it's showing is the scalene triangle as a possible site of compression, the costoclavicular space, and the pectoralis minor space. The, it's believed that the neurogenic form, that is the compression uh, or pathology of the brachial plexus, occurs at the scalene triangle level or the pectoralis minor space. In the pectoralis minor space, the compression occurs between the pectoralis minor muscle and probably the third or fourth rib. The arterial form of thoracic outlet syndrome often occurs in the scalene triangle area due to anomalous ribs, whereas the vascular, or say the venous form of 
thoracic syndrome often occurs in the costoclavicular space. Here's another diagram of the potential compression sites, costoclavicular space, as well as the scalene triangle. Well, in terms of a greater overview of the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet syndrome, it's thought that you know, there may be a congenital predisposition to the syndrome upon which an injury, like hyperextension flexion injury perhaps, or overuse injury, then leads to the development of the symptoms. The narrowed space affects the scalene muscles, the brachial plexus, the nerves, the long thoracic nerve, for example, and the stellate ganglion. And, you know, interestingly, you know, when, if you've seen patients with NTOS, some of them will say, well, boy, you know, they feel like their hand changes color. Sometimes it's white, sometimes it's purple, sometimes it's red. And that certainly may be due to compromise of the sympathetic nervous system, that is specifically the stellate ganglion. This disorder is complex. There's no question about it. It's a complex spectrum disorder, and it's provoked a lot of controversy. Does it exist? Does it not exist? In fact, I think it's one of the most controversial diagnoses in medicine. And frankly, I'll say this. You know, we really don't understand the pathophysiology of NTOS yet. And again, I'm talking about the disputed form. Um, So we don't really understand the pathophysiology, and we also really don't have accepted diagnostic criteria yet, unfortunately, for this syndrome. And yet, there are plenty of patients who present with symptoms, you know, in the neck, down the arm, uh, that are not explained via, and I'll talk about this later, but are not explained uh, by means of cervical neck pathology, cervical disc herniation, stenosis, shoulder pathology, if you will, or peripheral nerve injury. We do know this, though, that if it remains untreated, that the quality of life of patients with NTOS is as bad as those with chronic heart failure, and that's significant. Well, as I mentioned, three forms exist. The neurogenic form, right, which we think is due to some compromise or compression of the brachial plexus, and the arterial and venous forms. I mentioned, think back to that picture that I showed you earlier of that left hand that had hypothenar and thenar atrophy. Well, that's true neurogenic TOS. But that represents just 1% of the cases. I mean, I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a patient in 15 years who've had, who's had true NTOS. They really represent what I'm seeing are patients who have the disputed form, which represents about 99% of those patients. The symptoms are suggestive of some compromise. We think of the brachial plexus. But really, you know, I said there aren't many objective findings, and others would argue, well, you know, there aren't any objective findings. There's nothing there. We don't see anything. And and that can be the case, certainly, in many patients. Well, so what's the etiology? Well, you know, it's thought to be a space problem, maybe congenital, superimposed traumatic injury then leads to the symptoms. What, you know, the injury, the traumatic injury, if you will, or the overuse injury may lead to muscle enlargement, muscle hypertrophy, um, fibrosis also of the muscle, or perhaps even over the brachial plexus that can lead to the symptoms. Hyperextension flexion injuries, as I mentioned before, whiplash injuries, repetitive stress injury can lead to the symptoms. Interestingly, there have been a couple of histologic studies that have shown pathology in the anterior scalene muscle or the middle scalene muscle or both. And in fact, those two muscles, one or the other, could be the main pain generator in NTOS. What those histologic studies showed was that muscle fibrosis was a main finding when they excise scalene muscles. And in fact, scar tissue, that is fibrosis, was three times more common in patients who had symptoms of NTOS than the controls who did not. 
what about anomalous ribs and cervical ribs? You know, I mean, if you read the literature, certainly the past literature, I mean, uh, it's thought that, boy, you know, cervical ribs are a, a causative factor in NTOS. They can be, but, you know, the incidence is low. I think it's like 0.74% or something of that nature. So the incidence of anomalous or cervical ribs is low. Nevertheless, you know, they can narrow the space. And this is a picture of uh, different cervical ribs, anomalous, say, first rib that derives from T1, the, like the transverse process of T1, and then inserts onto the second rib. Or a cervical rib, for example, that derives from the transverse process of C7 and inserts itself onto the second cervical rib via a cervical band. Or even other you know, cervical ribs that insert onto other, uh, like the second rib or the first rib. I mean, there are, different, there are various different ways cervical ribs or anomalous ribs can present. A lot of the time, if you talk to the vascular surgeons, uh, these anomalous ribs lead to arterial uh, thoracic outlet syndrome versus neurogenic. However, if it exists, then they certainly can cause symptoms of neurogenic TOS. <clears throat> Well, let's talk about the anterior scalene muscle because I feel like this is uh, this certainly is targeted by surgeons, right? The vascular surgeons, the neurosurgeons who perform the decompressive surgeries are often removing the first rib or the anterior scalene muscle or both. So, you know, they feel like this is a compressive problem and they want to decompress the space. So, in, in my work, I've targeted the anterior scalene muscle with some success. Well, what is it? I mean, it derives from the transverse processes of C3 to 6 vertebra. It attaches to the first rib. It helps bend the neck and rotate the neck a bit. And it also is an accessory muscle of respiration. So spasm of this muscle, which can occur, puts traction on the plexus and can cause muscle edema, neural edema. And if both of those occur, just one of those, well, that can narrow the outlet. Scar development can occur. That is fibrosis, as I mentioned before. And that certainly can worsen compromise, um, the neural compromise, and perpetuate pain and lead to the symptoms of NTOS. So we can target the anterior scalene muscle to help reduce spasm, reduce tension, and try to interrupt the events that lead to NTOS. How do patients present? Well, first of all, this affects women more than men, unfortunately. This is you know, the case for other chronic pain conditions as well. I don't think we know why it does, but, but it does. The incidence is somewhere between, you know, point, um, I think, 3 to almost 8%, which is quite high. It can be quite high, and it may be an overestimate, and the, and the range is quite, quite large. As I mentioned, certain uh, musicians, perhaps data entry personnel, assembly line workers may be especially vulnerable to the symptoms of NTOS, to development of the symptoms of NTOS. Certain athletes as well, baseball pitchers, volleyball, swimming, weightlifters, these are all you know, sports that involve a lot of overhead arm movements. And if you see patients with NTOS, most of the patients will report that when they, I'll talk about this later, but when they abduct the arm, right, they're abducting the arm or they raise the arm, externally rotating it, that leads to the symptoms. More likely than not, in a lot of patients, something about this, you know, of over, the overhead movement, the abduction of the arm, leads to the symptoms. Biomechanically, biomedically, we don't know why. Um, at Hopkins, actually, we're developing a group along with uh, a biomedical engineer to try to study this, to figure out what it is about the movement of the arm that leads to the symptoms. 
and then what the pathophysiology is. However, a history of neck trauma to either the, uh, well, as I said, to the neck, to the shoulder, to the arm is reported in 70 to 80% of patients who display symptoms of NTOS, which is pretty high. So the classic form, that is, of, in terms of the presentation, is that patients will say the pain radiates from the shoulder down the inner aspect of the arm, forearm, into the pinky and the ring finger. That's the classic form. However, often the symptoms are much beyond that. I mean, patients will report neck pain, scapular pain, headaches. They'll report pain that's not just down the medial aspect of the arm. It might be anterior, medial and anterior, or lateral, or throughout the arm and fingers. And it could represent you know, upper plexus system, uh, symptoms like C5, 6, 7, or lower plexus symptoms, C8 to T1. As I mentioned before, you can see some vascular uh, symptoms associated with NTOS, and that may be because of sympathetic nervous system activation compared to any type of pathology of the subclavian artery or subclavian vein. The exam can show tender scalene muscles, uh, skin, tender muscles along the trapezius, the chest wall, Sometimes you can get a tenel sign supraclavicularly. I don't always get that, but sometimes I do. Um, and some patients will have a reduced sensation to light touch, maybe pinprick, in the fingers. And some provocative maneuvers are positive, but not all the time. I would say this, though, again, that the provocative maneuver that, doesn't, you know, that most of the time that leads to the symptoms is this abduction of the arm. Now, you know, some, neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome sometimes reminds me of complex regional pain syndrome. Why is that? Because in complex regional pain syndrome, you need to rule out other diagnoses, right? Other conditions that can mimic the signs and symptoms of complex regional pain syndrome. Well, I think that's true for NTOS as well. You've got to make sure that other pathology isn't accounting for what you're seeing in the neck or down the arm. And those can be things like cervical disc pathology, cervical stenosis, cervical neuroforaminal stenosis, right? Uh, or patients who've had neck surgery can present with neck pain and arm pain, arm symptoms, arm numbness, paresthesias, and pain. So you have to rule that out. Then, you know, you have to rule out shoulder pathology. I mean, I've seen several patients, and it's very complex, who've had shoulder surgery and they've had neck surgery, and they're presenting with symptoms down the arm. It's not that easy to tease everything out. Uh, but, you know, shoulder can cause pain, certainly radiate sometimes up the neck, usually not in my experience, but it can radiate down the arm and patients will feel like, boy, gosh, you know, is this, is this from the shoulder? Because there's shoulder pathology there, perhaps on MRI. So you have to rule out shoulder pathology, neck pathology, also peripheral nerve pathology. Carpal tunnel can not only cause pain in the hand, but can radiate proximally up the forearm. So uh, cubital tunnel syndrome can also cause radiating pain in the arm. So these are other conditions you have to rule out before uh, we can make the diagnosis of NTOS. So I think the examination, the history of the examination is important in trying to come up with a diagnosis. There are a lot of ancillary tests, and I'll go through that. But, you know, a lot of them lack sensitivity and specificity, especially provocative testing. Adson maneuver, ruse, right, you know, all these that you read about really are not that reliable in my experience, and I think based on the literature, and they have low specificity. Well, let's talk about a couple of them that are used, some provocative maneuvers. The nerve tension tests, like pressing over the clavicle, supraclavicular tendinous, can sometimes yield symptoms down the arm. Elevated arm stress test is one that I use a lot. Again, it's the abduction of the arm, external rotation of the forearm, and having patients slowly 
you know, open and close their hand, and it's hard for me to do that for three minutes. But you know, that, there's some movement there, in my experience, and I'm not sure what's going on pathophysiologically, but that leading to the symptoms. Adson test, I don't really use, uh, frankly, because I think that it, it yields a lot of false positives. So I don't really use that as a diagnostic method for NTOS. And frankly, a lot of the patients that I see will end up seeing the vascular surgeon or they've seen the vascular surgeon before me, and the vascular surgeon prov- uh, actually does duplex scans of the neck you know, to rule out a vascular etiology of the thoracic outlet syndrome. Other tests can be used, spurling, for example, which might predict or give you evidence of some cervical disc disease. But a lot of these, again, are not specific, and I don't think they're particularly helpful. Well, if we don't have helpful... <laughs> Um, diagnostic tools on physical examination. What about diagnostic testing? Well, there are a lot of tests that you can do. And one of them is EMG nerve conduction tests. And more often than not, they're often normal in patients with NTOS. But they can exclude other conditions that can mimic it. Radiculopathies, carpal tunnel syndrome, as I mentioned before, cubital tunnel syndrome. Test x-rays are often performed in these patients as well to rule out a cervical rib. MRIs can also be performed to rule out disc pathology, stenosis in the neck that can lead to these symptoms. What about 3T, so 3-Tesla MR brachial plexus neurography? Well, one of the neurosurgeons that I work with actually orders this most of the time. Um, You know, it focuses on the brachial plexus in this scalene area, scalene triangle, a little lower than that as well. And, you know, some have advocated this test to be used in lots of patients or to help achieve the diagnosis of NTOS. Why? Because there's been a study that I listed here that reported that 7 out of 30 patients, uh, in the 7 out of 30 patients, they identified morphological correlates of NTOS that were later, later confirmed by surgical exploration. What were those morphological correlates? Well, they were fibrous bands along the brachial plexus, and that led to the symptoms in those patients of NTOS. So some, some neurosurgeons, I think have said, well, look, forget about all these other tests. Let's focus on 3T MRI, um, brachial plexus neurography. But again, it's not, you know, 7 out of 30 patients isn't that many, and yes, that it could pick up, fiber spans along the brachial plexus. But in a lot of patients, that's not the etiology. And if you talk to the surgeons who perform these procedures, uh, the vascular surgeons, the neurosurgeons, a lot of the time there aren't fiber spans there. What about this other test called the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve conduction study? Many, many words there. Well, one of the vascular surgeons that I work with seems to use this uh, more often than not, frankly. It measures the sensory function of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus, C8 and T1. And, you know, this test can be abnormal when the EMG nerve conduction test is normal. So, you know, I think there's some feeling that you can perform this test and this might better identify patients with NTOS. But I don't think it can yet. I don't think we have enough validation studies to support its use as a firm diagnostic tool for NTOS. I put this slide in here because this is the cutaneous innervation of the upper extremity. Well, it's complicated. And actually, here you can see, I don't know if you can appreciate it on the slide, but you can see the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve and the distribution of it, and that it derives from C8 and T1. What we see in patients with NTOS 
is that you know the symptoms may be more traditional initially, but over time they change and they're more diffuse. Why? Maybe because they're exhibiting central sensitization. Think back to that slide that I showed you before, right? There's an expansion of those sensory fields. So, you know, where patients initially had pain in a maybe a dermatomal distribution, it now spans more than one dermatome and maybe it's non-dermatomal because of the central sensitization process that occurs. Let's talk about the anterior scalene muscle, the anterior scalene block. This is often used. In fact, the Society for Vascular Surgery now has developed, uh, I think as, as of 2016, they have diagnostic criteria for NTOS. Now, it's not universally accepted, but in their criteria, there are four. Three of the four, they say, need to be met to meet, to basically achieve the diagnosis of NTOS. Uh, but one of them is a positive response to a scalene block properly performed. I'm not sure what all that means. I'm not sure what properly performed means, under what modality, is it CT, is it MRI, you know, I don't know. But, but anyway, that's, that's in their sort of diagnostic guideline. So let's talk about that. You know, and this is something that I do a lot, I've done for 15 years or so. And, you know, I don't think this is a diagnostic, this is not necessarily confirmatory at all, and I don't think it is. But I think it can help support the diagnosis, and that's how I present it to patients. Um, because frankly, we don't really have many good tools yet. It's thought that when you inject a little local anesthetic into the muscle, that it reduces tension in the muscle, might paralyze some of the muscle that could be in spasm, allows the first rib to descend, right, because the anterior scalene muscle attaches to the first rib, and thereby decompresses the thoracic outlet and leads to pain relief. This isn't really new. It was first described in 1939 and done using anatomic landmarks. Today, this is still done uh, by certain practitioners using anatomic landmarks. But... A study that was done in 1998 showed that a positive response, that is pain relief by injecting local anesthetic into the anterior scalene muscle, correlated well with good surgical outcomes. So if you inject local anesthetic into the scalene muscle and the muscles in spasm and it decreases you know, the uh, pressure inside the outlet and it leads to pain control, that the thought is that that test you know, would help predict surgical outcomes decompressive surgery, right? The scalenectomies, the rib resections, and so on that are done. 94%, in that particular study, 94% of patients who had a positive block, that is, who had pain relief, had good surgical outcomes following the surgery versus just 50% of patients who subsequently had surgery but had a negative block, that is, who did not report relief from that intramuscular anterior scalene local anesthetic injection. So it's done using landmarks, anatomic landmarks, EMG, ultrasound, CT primarily. The CT, so I was involved several years ago in a study, it was a retrospective study, and we analyzed different modalities, imaging modalities, um, for injecting the anterior or middle scalene muscles with local anesthetic or botulinum toxin. And we found that CT guided procedures were a little bit more effective in terms of minimizing some of the side effects associated with the block. That is, Horner's, dysphonia, dysphagia, and brachial, inadvertent brachial plexus blocks. This is what it looks like under CT guidance. Uh, it's a transverse view, or we're probably around C6 or so. You can see the trachea <coughs> there, the carotid artery, <coughs> sternocleidomastoid muscle here. Here's the anterior scalene muscle right there, and the middle slash posterior scalene muscle complex is behind that. And the brachial plexus lies between the anterior scalene muscle and the middle scalene 
muscle. And here, so, you know, CT provides quite good imaging of the muscles, of the vessels, and of the bones. It doesn't show us, of course, the neuroanatomy. It doesn't show us the nerves, the brachial plexus. But this is an example of uh, the scalene muscle, and this is an example of what it looks like under CT with a little bit of contrast injected there to confirm placement into that proper muscle. That's maybe 0.3 cc's of contrast, and then it's followed by 0.5 cc's of local anesthetic. What are the treatments for NTOS? Well, let's start with the conservative treatments. The conservative treatments typically are physical therapy, physical therapy, and physical therapy. All, these, all patients with NTOS, in my experience, undergo physical therapy. Um, and in physical therapy, they're, they're doing ergonomic corrections. They're doing postural corrections, stretching exercises, nerve glides. And they're focusing on the, usually the scalene triangle. Uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, can also be helpful in patients who have chronic TOS chronic NTOS, I guess, to be specific. It, uh, you know, CBT can be quite effective. It takes a while. It's not an overnight process, and it doesn't produce relief immediately. But over the course of months, can be quite effective uh, in terms of reducing pain and in helping patients reframe the pain experience from negative to positive. And it minimizes, self -talk. It minimizes all the negative self-talk and catastrophizing, which can be very helpful in chronic pain conditions and in patients who have NTOS. Well, if you look at the data on physical therapy for NTOS, what do you see? Some of the data suggests that heat packs, exercise programs, and cervical traction are helpful. We really can't do this much anymore, but there was a study that showed that inpatient rehabilitation followed by a home exercise program was quite effective and had a high percent satisfaction rate among patients with NTOS. It's hard to get that approved today. Significant pain uh, decreases and treatment satisfaction with partial corrections and shoulder girdle strengthening exercises in one study was found for patients who underwent these treatments for quite some time, for 14 months. Uh, one of my colleagues also published a study whereby she said that, gosh, 60 to 70 percent of patients could be successfully managed non-operatively with physical therapy if it's performed for at least two months. Now, in my experience, I mean, I'm not seeing, obviously, those patients who improve with physical therapy. I'm seeing patients who have done physical therapy or are in the process of doing physical therapy and still aren't getting adequate benefit. But I think it can be very helpful, and certainly it's used post-surgically. What about medications? Well, you know, in general, there aren't a lot of medications, in my experience, used to treat uh, TOS or NTOS. Now, some of them are muscle relaxants. They cause a lot of sedation during the day, so it's hard to use them in patients who are working. Tizanidine might be a good one because it's an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. Uh, NSAIDs can be used. Surely trigger point injections along the trapezius are effective. And because there may be neuropathic symptoms associated with NTOS, those antineuropathic medic medications that we use for other conditions can be applied to this condition as well. Tricyclics, right, SNRIs, some of the membrane stabilizers, and on occasion, opioids, if other treatments fail. The trapezius muscle in this condition is often affected um, due to postural abnormalities that occur from the syndrome. So patients report, you know, strain, spasms, in the trapezius muscle in different locations. And their muscle is quite big. I mean, it extends inferiorly from T12 all the way up to C1. Uh, so there can be points along the trapezius that are painful, and doing trigger point injections there, I've found, can be helpful for patients with NTOS. Okay, how about the use of botulinum toxin, Botox, 
right? It's minimally invasive, and it can be applied to the scalene muscles, also to other muscles, the trapezius, the pectoralis minor. And if you look at the studies on this, a lot of these muscles are targeted with Botox with overall pretty good effectiveness. So in my experience, I did some work on using botulinum toxin and doing the local anesthetics under CT guidance, uh, just injecting a low-dose local anesthetic and low-dose botulinum toxin to the anterior scalene muscle. You know, I like Botox a lot. It can be used and it's applied for many different chronic pain conditions. It has FDA approval for several conditions as well. It reduces muscle overactivity and may decrease pain and inflammation. So it's approved for, uh, gosh, hemifacial spasm, blepharospasm, chronic migraine, prophylaxis, which I think is, in my experience, effective, and strabismus, and other conditions as well. Hyperhidrosis, interestingly, I've had some patients who have horrible hyperhidrosis of the palmar surface of their hands, and botulinum toxin into the, now there are a lot of injections, but botulinum toxin into the hand has produced remarkable results. I mean, I have one woman who really, I mean, you you would basically, she couldn't shake anyone's hand because it was like, you know, shaking hands with someone who was perspiring constantly and the hand was completely wet and boy I mean it's like night and day now due to botulinum toxin. So it's really safe. If it's used properly Botox is very safe and because it's of its safety profile, profile and efficacy the off-label use has expanded to other pain conditions. You know I've listed some of them here. Piriformis syndrome, lateral epicondylitis, for example. And even there are some studies, randomized, small randomized control trials on the use of Botox uh, for post-hepatic neuralgia or complex regional pain syndrome, interestingly. Well, we know that it reduces muscle overactivity. It blocks the release of acetylcholine and thereby reduces muscle spasm for a period of maybe three months, four months or so. But there may be other mechanisms of action here. And this may be why we see relief in patients who have NTOS when we inject it into the anterior scalene muscle or other scalene muscles. And that is that it inhibits the release of neuropeptides, right, like substance P, glutamate. And we know those involved, those substances are involved with nociceptive trans- transmission as well as central sensitization. So it may reduce pain by reducing or inhibiting the release of certain neuropeptides, blocking muscle overactivity. And interestingly, in a couple of studies, we've seen botulinum toxin improve wound healing, and that was an animal study in injured muscles. In another study, botulinum toxin reduced scar formation. That was in patients who had radiation fibrosis syndrome. So interestingly, in patients who might have fibrosis that is developed perhaps along the brachial plexus or at least in the muscle, the anterior scalene muscle, middle scalene muscle, botulinum toxin may have an effect other than just reducing muscle overactivity. We've had evidence since 1969 of the benefits of botulinum toxin for multiple different pain conditions. So I think that its application makes sense for neurogenic TOS. Uh, One of the first studies that was done under CT guidance with respect to injecting the anterior scalene muscle used just 20 units of Botox into that one muscle. Today, I use about 25 units of Botox. Um, we had just about 27 patients at that time. And what that study did show was that patients had quite a bit of relief at one month and two months. At three months, and we only assessed them for three months, uh, they didn't have as much relief anymore. But they still had, on certain parameters, relief of the, some of the sensory symptoms as well as VAS scores. And remarkably so, 
the pain scores in those patients really did not return to pre-intervention levels even at three months. Well, now, when I inject this, and I do this routinely for patients with NTOS who don't want surgery, for example, or are not candidates for surgery, typically they are reporting pain relief for about three months. It can range, you know, two months, but all the way up to five or six months. This is just another example of uh, Botox being injected into the anterior scalene muscle under CT guidance. So similar slides to before. What are the benefits of imaging? Well, the benefits of CT guidance are that you can visualize the structures nearby. It's fast, it's accurate, it's safe. It takes about just, gosh, a couple of minutes to do under CT fluoroscopy. Um, it's not obscured, so ultrasound can be used certainly as well. Uh, sometimes ultrasound can be obscured by obesity and by other osseous structures. CT uh, obviates that problem. Uh, in that study that I mentioned before, sort of the retrospective analysis of about 100 patients, we found that a higher percentage of the anesthetic injections into the anterior scalene or middle scalene muscles resulted in positive blocks under CT guidance compared to ultrasound, compared to EMG and fluoroscopy, and compared to EMG alone. This is verified by a high rate of improvement after surgery, which helped to confirm true cases of NTOS using the CT-guided blocks. Now, you know, obviously using CT does expose patients to ionizing radiation. We want to avoid that. However, uh, this is very fast. I mean, it, I th in, this, in a couple of studies that I mentioned before, CT exposure was about 25 seconds. It rarely exceeded a minute. So that's, that's pretty, it's pretty brief. What about other imaging studies, though? Because certainly you can, you know, use other imaging modalities to deposit botulinum toxin into the scalene muscles or elsewhere. And a lot of those show relief. Fluoroscopy and EMG guidance, 64% uh, of patients experienced more than 50% relief at one month. Now, that was, in that study, bot bot Botox was injected into the two scalene muscles as well as the trapezius. What about ultrasound and EMG? 91% good outcome. Fluoroscopy and EMG, 80%, 81% or so percent good outcome. And ultrasound, the use of ultrasound-guided uh, injection of Botox into the anterior scalene muscle and the pectoralis muscle, sorry, muscle, yielded about 69% pain relief, but only for about a month. So you can see that, you know, these studies are demonstrating efficacy, but, you know, they're using different muscles and targeting different muscles. So it makes it difficult to figure out, well, is it, you know, which muscle is it <laughs> that's producing the relief? Is it all of them? Is it just some of them? We don't know yet. Uh, there was a randomized controlled trial that was done in Canada in 2011, and this study examined 18 or 20 patients, actually. 20 patients were injected with botulinum toxin. Uh, 18 patients were injected with saline. They injected the anterior scalene muscle and middle scalene muscles. They targeted those muscles. They injected about 37.5 units of Botox into each muscle. And unfortunately, there was no significant pain improvement seen in the treatment group. Why? Well, there were certain limitations of this study. For example, most of these patients had long-term pain. They had pain for, boy, about six years or so. And we know that when you have long-term pain, central sensitization can occur, and it's much more difficult to treat. Some of these patients had low baseline pain as well, so it was difficult to detect any change from the botulinum toxin injection. And there were some suboptimal binding methods uh, that led to unbinding, unblinding, and allocation bias. So there were some problems with this study, 
that I think are worth mentioning in terms of why perhaps we didn't see any results, positive results of the use of Botox. This is a long slide, and it's not for you necessarily to look at right now, but I updated it and thought it might be useful for you or patients in terms of just describing uh, an overview of the etiology, the clinical presentation of NTOS, certain diagnostic measures that we use, minimally invasive therapies like botulinum toxin, as well as surgical interventions. So in general, when we use Botox into the anterior scalene muscle or other scalene muscles, we're seeing relief for about three months. It avoids surgery, surgical complications, and time off work. So when patients have this surgery, at least in my institution, they need to do physical therapy for uh, starting two weeks after the surgery for about two months. Uh, one of the surgeons used to require patients to take two to three months off of work. That's a long time, and that's very difficult to do. And they can't lift more than 10 pounds for six months. So I think it's nice to have an option if patients want to avoid that or wait. So I've used this uh, for patients who want to wait before they have surgery or they don't want surgery or they want to use it as a bridge to surgery or perhaps as a trial to see if they can function well without surgery. And this is what it looks like. This is the positioning um, that, at least at my institution, for patients who have the transaxillary approach to the anterior scalenectomy and first rib resection. And this is what we can avoid uh, through the minimally invasive approach. I've listed here some information about surgery. There are different approaches. There's a lack of comparative efficacy data, though, on the approaches. Which one is better? We don't really know. Low-quality evidence of the transaxillary approach to the first rib resection reduces pain any more than the supraclavicular scalenectomy does. And there's no randomized evidence that either one is better than no treatment alone. There are reports of high success rates and low complication rates. No question about that. But there are also longitudinal studies that have demonstrated 60% recurrence after the first year and 80% recurrence after the second year. That's pretty high. Other studies demonstrate persistent disability in 60% of patients one year after surgery. Now, this may be improved and outcomes may be improved by different surgical techniques. For example, endoscopic transaxillary first rib resection is used in certain locations in the United States. That may lead to better surgical outcomes, as well as robotic first rib resections. So in conclusion, I'd say this. Uh, NTOS is the most common form of thoracic syndrome. It may affect as many as, gosh, 8% of the population. A lot of it's undiagnosed, not understood, and it's a controversial diagnosis because we don't know a lot about it yet. But we're trying to learn more. <clears throat> it can lead to persistent pain, impaired function, and emotional distress. No question about it. And as I mentioned before, if it's untreated, quality of life can be abysmal, as bad as chronic heart failure. So I think that we have emerging evidence through various different um, longitude, some longitudinal studies, more prospective observational studies, some retrospective studies, that the use of botulinum toxin can be helpful as a therapeutic modality for patients who have this syndrome, who don't want surgery or who want a bridge to surgery. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time.